So uh, this morning we're looking at Acts chapter 11 and verse 19 through to verse 30. And in the NIV this passage is entitled The Church in Antioch. So Acts 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The context of this passage then, about the church in Antioch, that um, was a big city in the nation of Syria, above Israel. The context of this passage really is to be found in the end, at the end of chapter 7 of Acts and the beginning of chapter 8. And reference is made to this in the first verse, in verse 19. The fact is that following the martyrdom of Stephen... A campaign of persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem and as a result, all the believers making up the early church are scattered far and wide into other areas, even into other nations, apart from the original 12 apostles. And as those people leave Jerusalem, they take the gospel with them. They take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with them wherever they go. And... Because of that, churches are established and the gospel is preached and churches grow. And one such church is this church in Antioch. And what we see here is a wonderful early fulfilment of Jesus' promise given to his disciples in Matthew 16 verse 18 where he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. He said that to his disciples, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And that's proven wonderfully in this example, where despite the circumstances of persecution against the church, where hell, the devil and his forces must have thought we've delivered a full frontal assault, potentially a fatal blow to this formative group of people who profess the name of Jesus, surely they are finished. Well, no, they weren't, because Jesus continued to build his church. Against the gates of hell, 
the gates of hell will not prevail. I used to be really puzzled by that statement because I thought, well, gates don't really ever advance, do they? Gates don't really move. It isn't so much to do with a castle or a fort and defences, but rather the fact that in this time, in the Near East, elders and leaders of a given community would meet in the gateway to the city to decide policy, to make plans. And what the verse is saying, Matthew 16, verse 18, is that the plans of hell will not overcome the church. The schemes of the devil will not prevail against the people of God. Just as Jesus overcame the enemy and prevailed in his resurrection and confounded the wisdom of hell, so also Stephen's martyred, but the church grows. And today around the world, despite persecution, perhaps in places like India, despite paganism, despite secularism, Despite the values that we find ourselves immersed in every day, Jesus is committed to building his church. And the reason he can build his church, the reason he has the right to build his church, is because he is the Lord of all. And Stephen, at the point of death, in Acts 7, verse 55, sees a glorious revelation of Jesus as the risen, ascended, glorified Lord. That's the picture he has of Jesus. And this morning... We got to that place, didn't we? We recognised, yes, we know it, but let's experience it. Let's recognise afresh that, Jesus, you are the Lord of all. You are the risen, ascended, glorified King. And as a result of that, you have the right, you have the authority to build your church. There aren't many hymns or creeds in church history for some reason that really celebrate Jesus as the builder of the church. But he is the builder of the church. He's the Lord. He's ascended. He's glorified, he reigns over all, and he is the builder of the church. It is notable that in this passage we're told in Acts 19, sorry, Acts uh, 11, about the church in Antioch, that in this place the believers are called Christians for the first time. They're called Christians for the first time, and that literally means little Christs. So they were renowned as little Christs. It probably was related to the fact that they worshipped this Lord Jesus, and they proclaimed his name, the Lord Jesus, but no doubt as well, they reflected in some way his life, the life of the Lord Jesus. And this morning, I want us to look at this passage and consider it in terms of the fact that, yes, Jesus is committed to building his church, but he's also committed to building it in a particular way. And this passage shows us wonderfully that actually he's committed to building his church in such a way that it reflects his life and ministry while he was on this earth. So today we're going to look at four priorities that every local church should have. Because if we have these four priorities, we'll be reflecting the life and ministry of Jesus as we're built in his likeness, as we reflect his life and ministry here and now. The first one is a proper emphasis on large numbers. Following the remarkable establishment of this church in a new nation in Syria, despite all the incredible circumstances which were really adverse, people from lots of different countries, very diverse, Jews and Gentiles, the gospel was preached, the church was established, and people were becoming Christians. And the church in Jerusalem heard about this, and as a result, they sent Barnabas, one of the senior members of the church in Jerusalem. And he arrives, and what does he see? Well, it says in verse 23, it says, when he arrived 
and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. He was glad. I'm sure he was. He arrives in this place and he sees the evidence of God's grace. Well, this morning, as I look out upon you, I see the evidence of God's grace. And I know some of you better than others, but if you know Lord Jesus Christ, you are actually living proof of the grace of God. And just consider that. Just consider the fact that you're even here this morning. If you didn't know the Lord Jesus, where would you be? Give thanks that you haven't woken up this morning and you're at home with a hangover. Give thanks that actually he saved your life. He intervened gloriously by his grace and called you to himself and plucked you out of a place of death and bondage. You were lost. You were undone. You were deceived. You had nothing. But now you're here. You're known by him. You're a child of God and you're among his people. Thank God that he has done that. It's his grace. But thank God as well that you're not at home just eating a chocolate muffin, reading the Sunday papers. I acknowledge myself sometimes, on a Sunday morning, I've thought, oh, it'd be nice to eat a muffin and read a paper, wouldn't it? Okay, am I human? I've done that, but actually, thank God I'm not doing that this morning. You might think, you wish you were, you wish I was. <laughs> Don't start thinking about big muffins. But God's grace has rescued us from that empty life of just materialism and living for the things of this world, thinking we had it all sorted, all together. God's grace has come, and you're an epic of God's grace. He watched over you. He chose when to come to you and reveal himself to you. You couldn't manufacture that. You couldn't muster it up yourself. It was all his grace. So there's evidence of God's grace here, but also, not just in our own lives, but as we look around us. Maybe you sit next to the same people week on and week out. Week in and week out. (laughs) And you just take them for granted, but they are evidence of God's grace. But what I want us to concentrate on, first of all, is this, that there were great numbers. What's the number of people here this morning? A few hundred. Are we a great number? Not really. Are we a good number? Not really. Are we a reasonable number? Yes. We're a reasonable number. Is there God's grace here? Is there evidence of it? Of course there is. We just said that. But how much more evidence of God's grace is there with a good number, with a great number, with a vast number? Because there is in this place the phrase, a great number, great numbers, that occurs three times in this passage, twice in reference to those who have been added to the church and saved, and once in terms of the fact that great numbers are taught. So great numbers is a key emphasis. And there's a lot of debate, as there always has been down the ages, about church. How do you do church? I hate that phrase anyway, but people use it. How do we do church? And some people say, well, we can do church in the small or church in the big. And throughout history, people have thought, in some old-fashioned evangelical circles, the world up there is a horrible place, it's a wicked place, we don't go near it, we shun it, we retreat into a ghetto, and we are a holy huddle, we are a small group, we remain faithful to the word of God, we're a remnant, and we delight almost in our smallness. That's not God's heart. On the other hand, some people like the idea of, oh, well, we're a small group of people, And we celebrate authentic relationship. We want to know everyone really well with a family of God. And that's important. And therefore, we are the true church. We've got a grip of what it means to be the true church. We're just a small group. Authentic relationship. That sounds good. And partly it's true. But it's not a full view of God's heart for his people, the church. It's deficient. It's deficient. This idea of, well, it's all going to be about authentic relationship. So that I know everybody and everyone knows me. That is not actually fully biblical. 
We want to embrace relationship, real relationship with people, but it's not only that. You see, if we consider Jesus' life, and it's always so good to, we get a full picture and a balanced view of the idea of how we should view people and numbers. For example, we know full well that he ministered to 12, a small group of disciples, and it's good that we meet in small groups. That accords with that, doesn't it? It equates to the idea of Jesus ministered to 12. He had quality input into those men. And even less than that, he had an inner three, as it were. Not exclusive, not favourites, but he was man as well as God. He had friendships, relationships with Peter, James and John. And possibly it's hinted at in the scriptures that he even had a best mate, a best friend, if you like. And that was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it's good for us to have close friends. It's good for us to be part of a small group. But... Jesus also ministered to multitudes. When he fed the four and five thousand, actually, it was far more than four and five thousand. That was just the men. It was probably at least three times that on each occasion. Twelve thousand, fifteen thousand and more. He ministered to multitudes. Take that on the one hand and take the picture we have in heaven of many multitudes where it says in Revelation 7, chapter 9, it says... After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That's where we're heading. That's our destiny. That's what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be full of multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's going to be an awful lot of people there. I'm sure we'll have friendships, but we'll also be part of this huge throng worshipping Jesus, surrounding the throne. Now, if Jesus ministered on earth to multitudes and he showed us what that meant, and if in heaven we're going to be worshipping with multitudes, they're pretty good precedents, aren't they? To take hold of and realise, Jesus, we need a right priority in terms of big numbers, great numbers. Yes, friendship. Yes, small groups. But actually, multitudes. This is a big building, isn't it? And it can fit a lot more people in. Naturally speaking, I like close friendships. Naturally speaking, I like to be part of a group I know really well, who are like-minded, maybe from a similar background, who have similar interests, and are like me. Naturally, there's not one of us who doesn't gravitate to that sort of circle of people. And it's okay to have that type of interaction, but there's so much more. There's so much more that God's grace may abound in this place and fill. That rhymed, didn't it? (laughs) That God's grace may abound in this place and fill this building with people, great numbers, and that there would be even more evidence of his grace as a result. That's his heart. See, Antioch was a city, the third most important city in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in Syria. Its population was approximately half a million, 500,000. We live in a city with that number of people, approximately half a million. Yes, there were churches in the Bible that met in people's homes, but there were city churches. There were churches that were known as the church of a given city, no doubt in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, thousands are saved. Subsequent to that, day and day and day and day following, hundreds and thousands are saved. They meet in the temple courts. Church in the big, yes, they do meet in homes, no doubt. Church in the small. But they were known as the church in Jerusalem. And Antioch really effectively had a city church. And we believe that God's given us this building and the church has a given name, not just because it sounds good, but because people believe that God has given us 
a mandate to reach this city and to draw people from every quarter and fill this building. And even then, would it be a great number? It might just be a good number. It might have to build another tier on. <laughs> but let's have a heart for big numbers, a heart for great numbers, because that reflects the heart of Jesus. And we're his people, we're his church. Multitudes are on his heart. That's the first point, that we have a proper emphasis on great numbers, large numbers. The second point is this. The people in Antioch then were known as Christians, as I've said, and that doesn't mean little Christ's. But literally, Christ means anointed one. Anointed one. In the Old Testament, special people were anointed to help lead and govern the nation, whether it was kings, prophets, or priests. They were anointed with oil to set them apart to serve God. And one such person, as you know very well, I'm sure, is David. King David is anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Literally, he has oil poured over him, but at that very moment, as a mark of God's approval, and to give him power to do the job that's to come to rule the nation, he has the Holy Spirit come upon him in power. He is equipped with divine power to serve God and his people. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, he is anointed. And that pattern continues throughout the Old Testament. Specific people are anointed at particular times for very important tasks. It's not for everyone, it's for a few. Jesus, we're told in Acts 10, just a few chapters before, well, one chapter before, Acts 10, verse 38, Peter refers to how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus himself was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, with divine power for his mission, for his ministry. And we know that happened at his baptism. Yes, before his baptism, as he led his life up to that point, approximately at the age of 30, the Holy Spirit was in him. But at his baptism, as he was immersed in water, at the same time we're told, a dove, or the likeness of a dove, came upon him, and that was the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy, with the Holy Spirit. He went into the wilderness following that, full of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was anointed at that time for service, to serve God. That anointing came from heaven to empower him. And Jesus promised his disciples the same Holy Spirit power. Prior to him ascending, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5 and 8, Jesus says these words, he says, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus promised the same power to his people, to his followers. Divine power to live the Christian life, to fulfill their mission to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus needed that power. The disciples needed that power. We need that power. And it's available to us. Of course, the promise Jesus gave to his disciples is wonderfully fulfilled in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and that group are transformed. Seeing the resurrected Jesus was important. Of course it was. And it changed them. Gave them faith. What Jesus said is true. But actually, they weren't able to go with the gospel. They weren't empowered to do that until the Holy Spirit came upon them. Still, they were locked away. Still, they were timid. Still, they were afraid until the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. And the Holy Spirit is given to us that we might know the power of God to live this life. God never intended that we try to live it in our own strength. If we just preach a gospel of repentance 
And forgiveness, wonderful though that is, it's not the full gospel. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But he's also the one, as John says, who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He takes away sin and he brings power. That's his heart for us. That's the full gospel. Many years ago, uh, it's not many years ago, actually it's four or five years ago, um, I had a different car. I had a, a Corsa, a Vauxhall Corsa. And um, I, uh, I remember thinking, this is a very small car, because I'm quite a tall person. I used to call it a whistle. Um, it's like trying to get in a whistle. Remarkably small car. If you've got a Corsa, that's fine. It's, it's a good car to have. Um, but I remember my Corsa was one litre. That isn't very powerful. It's my first car, so it's not good to have a, t- a powerful car when you've got your first car, is it? Because it's a bit dangerous. So I had a one litre. Start small, build up. And I had this one litre Corsa. Now, a one litre car doesn't have much power. It's a right to go around town, maybe, but um, in other places like hills and motorways, it's poor. It's not very good. The performance is, is not that great. And I remember pulling out of junctions and pulling out onto a, you know, the national speed limit, an A road. And I pull out, there was no car coming, and suddenly I'm pulling out, I'm pushing really hard on the accelerator. Come on, Corsa, come on, Corsa. And uh, I got out, and there was no, no sign of a car, and suddenly, boom, a car right behind me. And you know they're really annoyed, and they're beeping the horn and flashing the lights. And I'm doing my best, I'm doing my best. Once I got to 30, I was all right, but it took about half an hour to get to 30. From 30 to 40, I was cruising. It was great. And on the motorway, I'd have to sit in the middle lane, middle lane driver. I'm sorry about that, that's what I was, because uh, in the M62, uphill to Leeds, the M62 across to Yorkshire from Manchester, where I, where I used to live. Going on the M62 with the articulated lorries in the, in the slow lane, massive things, and then coming up the fast lane, the BMWs, the Mercs, whatever, and I was sat in the middle in my little Corsa thinking, I don't want to be behind a lorry, but there's no way I'm getting in the fast lane with this little whistle. Um, the power just wasn't there. It was hard, and it wasn't a pleasure to drive. I was confined, I was cramped. It just wasn't comfortable, and it wasn't powerful. And then, um, I started to pray about the need of maybe a new car. Because I was using it to serve the church, of course. I was taking people lots of places. Um, it was very important. And um, I prayed for a new car. And uh, a family in the church gave me a sizable financial gift, which was really fantastic. It was a sizable financial gift. And I, I could actually use that to pay for a good part of a new car. And I got a 1.6 Focus. Ooh. I I'm not really into cars at all, so... Uh, I just pretended there to uh, engage some of you, draw you in. <laughs> I don't like Top Gear. Um, but no, I do have 1.6. And the difference it made, having 1.6, pulling away at junctions, on the motorway in the fast lane, doing 70 miles an hour. And um, on hills, going uphill and getting uphill, finishing the journey. The power was there, and also the comfort. It's a bigger car. It's more comfortable. And that car became available to me as an act of grace. It was actually funded by a gift from someone, and it brought more power. And the Holy Spirit, my friend, is given to us as a gift from God, his grace. Again, we can't earn it. We don't deserve it, but it's given. It's part of his heart for us, part of the gospel. And it's given to empower us. And as a result of getting that new car, driving became a pleasurable experience. Before that, it was irksome. Before that, it was a bit tedious and uncomfortable. And before you receive the power of the Spirit, the Christian life is sometimes irksome and uncomfortable. And you don't have the power to overcome. You don't have the power to live a life that God wants for you. The Bible does actually suggest that there can be Christians who haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, 
the gospel has gone to Samaria and people have become Christians and the church in Jerusalem again send people, representatives, to investigate. Peter and John go there. And um, if you turn to Acts 8, 15, 16, it says, when they arrived, they pray f- prayed for them, these new Christians, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So this group of people had responded to the gospel. They'd been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. But they hadn't heard really, they hadn't received certainly the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, Peter on the day of Pentecost refers to a prophecy given in the prophet of Joel talking about how the Holy Spirit will be poured out and the Holy Spirit will come upon all people. It says in Acts 2, verses 17, verse 17, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now some people can exclude themselves, disqualify themselves from this gift of God this power given from heaven to live the Christian life. They might think, well, I'm too old for that now. It's too new. It's a bit scary. Um, I don't want really to have to lose control. Is it really something that God would have me receive? Well, yes, it's for everyone, male and female, young and old, whatever race. It's for everybody. We can be afraid of the Holy Spirit. The other day, um, my wife and I, Hannah, were walking in the Peak District, and um, I, I behaved like, a bit like a Jesse, really, a bit, bit cowardly, because uh, there were these horses, these massive, shall I say stallions, just because it sounds better, I'm sure they were stallions, huge horses, gamboling in the field. They were just like, they must have been let out recently from the stables, and they were jumping around and kicking their legs in the air, buckarooing, and uh, there was three of them, and they were running around, and uh, it was very scary. And, uh, but the power, the horsepower of those animals is incredible. But I was afraid. I was afraid of those animals. I was walking very quickly. I actually prayed and God moved them to one side. <laughs> really did. I was very scared. But the power there is incredible. But I was afraid. And we can be afraid of the Holy Spirit's power. Because it might be that we don't feel in control. It might not be that we feel this is respectable or this is sensible. But the Holy Spirit is given as a gift from God. If you receive my spirit... That would mean you'd receive my likeness. So you would probably um, always go to a shop and try to buy the same thing that you bought last year by way of clothes. I'm always devastated when they change the, the range. Why have you changed those shoes? I like them. I want the same pair again. If you had my spirit and you'd, you'd do that sort of thing or you'd read, read your favourite novelist, um, you'd get all 21 of his books and then read them one at a time in chronological order. You would do that sort of thing. Um, You'd buy the same watch that you bought for 20 years and the strap breaks after 12 months and I always go and buy another one because it only costs £10, it's cheaper to buy £10 watch to get it repaired. You do that sort of thing if you have my spirit in you. Well, if you have the spirit of Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit, you do the things that Jesus does. You live like Jesus. Is Jesus scary? Are you afraid of Jesus? How can you be? How can you resist him? And he wants his spirit to live in you so that you might do the things he has done. So the second thing is... We are to be people anointed by the Holy Spirit, Christians. Christ means anointed one. The third thing is that we are to have a passion for biblical truth. It says here, um, 
in verse 25 downwards, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So Paul and Barnabas, Saul, Paul that is, and Barnabas teach this group of people for a whole year. Um, what would they teach them? Well, the things we've been singing and acknowledging this morning are so important. The truth that is so precious to us, that we are saved by grace, that we actually know God, that we're his children, and we're in Christ. We have amazingly died with him and been raised with him. That's our position, that's our standing. And no doubt Paul would have been preaching that. If you read Romans, that's what he's saying all the time, we're in Christ. And just because these people were known as anointed, the Holy Spirit was there in great measure, abounding, breaking out left, right and centre, I'm sure, it doesn't mean there was less emphasis on the Word of God. Some people think the more the Holy Spirit's moving, the greater freedom we have where the Holy Spirit's ministering, the less emphasis on the Word of God. Maybe the preaching is curtailed. Maybe it's even left out altogether. Well, that's not true. That's not true. I love this. The more the Holy Spirit is around and working the greater the amount of teaching and preaching and proclamation of the truth. Because, remember Jesus' baptism. He's baptised, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. And in that place, he's tempted by the devil. Satan tries to undermine his ministry. And what does Jesus do? He stands on the word of God. He stands on the word of God and he says, it is written. He quotes scripture three times. Do you know what book he quotes? He quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Where is Jesus? He's in a wilderness. What does he quote from? The book of Deuteronomy. What sort of book is the book of Deuteronomy? It's a book when the people of God were in the wilderness. Jesus loved scripture. He knew the Bible so well, the Old Testament. He knew what scriptures to quote. He knew what truth to stand on. I just want to encourage you, love the word of God. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Know where to turn when you need to come and refocus on certain truth. If you're a student here this morning, I want to challenge you, Read the Bible once each year at university because the time you have now is like no other time you'll have in your life. Yes, you may have a few lectures a week, maybe some even have six or seven hours a day, but you'll never have as much time as you have now to get into the Word of God. And it will stand you in such good stead. Build your life upon this truth like Jesus did. What about Acts 2, the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit's poured out and uh, Peter says, well, this is the fulfillment of what has been promised in Joel 2. This is that. It's this incredible new covenant. It's incredible outpouring. These signs, these wonders, these manifestations, these tongues, these foreign languages are what God said would happen. And then he preaches about Jesus, who he was, and what the Old Testament said he would come to achieve. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he says it's like we're drunk, yes, but he's preaching the word of God. He's not referring to feelings or sensations or incredible experiences, like, oh, this feels so good, come and jump in, come and bathe and soak. He's not doing that. There was powerful encounter, there was a remarkable experience, it was incredible. But he preaches the word of God. He defines what's happening in terms of the word of God. It's so important that we know the word of God and understand our experiences of God in relation to his truth. Jesus, of course, on the Sermon on the Mount, said just this. He preached famously this new kingdom manifesto in Matthew. And in Matthew, I've got the wrong page, they all fell on the floor. 
It's going to be the last one. It is the last one. I found it. In Matthew 7. Matthew 7. I'll just find it. Here we are. Speaking about what he said, the teaching he's brought, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams, of, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So he's saying, if you don't build your lives on the truth of God and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, when storm and wind, when hard things come, you will fall away. You will not be grounded. But he's saying the opposite is, is the key, that if you build your life on the truth of God, you will stand firm. And it's interesting, isn't it, that um, the other week Arnold referred to Moses going up Mount Sinai. And there was thunder, there was lightning, there were tremors. There was incredible power as God came and visited Moses on that mountain. What a remarkable experience. But actually, in, in the midst of that, God spoke. In the midst of that, God brought his truth, his law. What a great mountaintop experience. In the New Testament here, on um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus bringing truth. The people gathered around Jesus. They're encountering him. They're meeting with him. They're hearing his words. But actually, that's happening as they listen to his truth. These are mountaintop experiences. People talk about experiences, sensations, feelings, and we want more of God's presence. But as that happens, he will speak and he'll bring truth. And it's his truth that actually reveals who he is. So Jesus clearly had a passion for truth. And we as his church also need a passion for his truth. It's so important that we read the word of God, that it lives in us, it feeds us, it renews our minds. And just to challenge you as well, I know this year life has been so busy, the last academic year particularly, I could only read about two or three Christian books. Um, before that I'd read a load and it, it was really hard not to have the energy or the strength or even the sort of desire, if you like, to crack on with that. It was the word of God every day in small portions that was more important than anything else. So take hold of that, make time for it, but also why not try and say, I want to read more about the Bible. Find books, get recommendations, and experience more revelation of the truth of God. Finally, we see that this church in Antioch represented the life of Jesus as well in the fact that they were open to the prophetic. It says in verse 28, um, Agabus stood up, through the, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Then in 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. So Agabus stands amongst them and in the Spirit prophesies that's going to be a famine. There's going to be a famine in this region. And it says indeed that there was. We see in Acts 13 that Antioch is renowned as a place where there are teachers, but also a group of prophets. And it's in that section of verses, verses 1 to 3 in Acts 13, where they pray together and believe God's speaking that they might send out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. So you can see how the prophetic is working. 
people hearing from God, prophets hearing from God, and as a result, new, mis- new ministries are started. The church goes in a new direction. People hear from God. People are convinced in God that he is speaking. There's faith that rises, and there's agreement and unity saying, we believe this is of God, we test it, and we weigh it, but we say, right, we're going with this, and we're behind the people who brought it. We're behind the leaders who've given their assent to what God is saying. So new ministry is launched. New direction is taken. You see, Jesus, it says in John's Gospel, it says in John's Gospel, um, chapter 5, he only did what he saw the Father doing. He came under pressure from his family, from his friends, from his followers, from the religious authorities to do certain things. To do certain things to be a political leader, to demonstrate his power in a certain way that they thought was appropriate, but he wouldn't actually bow to that pressure because he was fundamentally committed to only doing what he saw the Father doing. He didn't do everything. He came to a pool in Jerusalem and healed one man among many. Why only one? We don't really know. Well, we do actually because that's what the Father told him to do. And that's it. And in our lives, as a church, we want to be those who hear from God, who are open to the prophetic, as God speaks to bring direction, because it can be very tempting to try to do everything. We need a ministry in every conceivable area, touching every part of the city, on every level, every age group, all the time. I suspect that's probably impossible, and would wear ourselves out trying to do it. Because what we need to know is God saying, do this, I'm speaking, have faith, believe me, and go with that ministry in that direction. And just encourage, if you're leading a ministry, I'm so blessed, as I've been amongst you for a year or so now, at prayer meeting and so on, and hearing about all the varied works that go on, how those leading those um, areas of church life clearly have believed God has spoken to them. And he's planted something in their heart and their faith to say, this is what God has said. And it's very challenging for those people to have to sometimes change things or go in a different direction because the people might say, what are you doing? We've done it like this for ages. How can you change it? It's because they're open to God and God is speaking. Whether it's kids club or fusion, whatever. They're seeking God and they're hearing from him and they're saying, this is now what God is calling us to do. So it's really important to be open to prophetic because we can't do everything. And nor should we try to imitate what other churches do. Maybe we've come back from a conference, we think, this is how we should do church. We should do exactly what they do. Because it's successful there. Well, it's because, no doubt, God has spoken to them and told them to do that there. But it doesn't mean it's the same here, that we have to imitate that. Because we want to be those who are open to the prophetic. That's on one level. Strategic, prophetic ministry, if you like. What about, for many of us, being open to the prophetic, well, Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement or son of prophecy. And prophecy, the Bible tells us, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14.3, prophecy is for the strengthening and encouragement and comfort of God's people. Prophecy is for encouragement. And I want to encourage you that when you go to small group, you have a heart to go and hear from God for other people. You have a heart to go and encourage those people you meet with in that small group context. I just want to 
look at quickly a wonderful picture in Luke's Gospel that has really excited me in recent times of what I believe God's best is for us in this context of encouraging one another. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And the angel Gabriel has come to Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is to become the mother of Jesus. She's been told that. And then Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who, of course, is already pregnant with John the Baptist. And I'll just read this portion of scripture to you. This is Luke 1, 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And I love the uh, reference here to um, greeting. Greeting occurs three times. You may think of that character in Bread who used to say greetings. Um, but don't. Um, because this is Mary and Elizabeth. Yes, they're friends, they're cousins, they're relatives. And this word greetings, when it speaks of relationship, they're close. They're friends. They love each other. And then the word blessed occurs three times as well. And what's happening is Elizabeth is prophesying over her cousin in terms of who she is and what God has for her. In terms of who she is and what God has for her. In the context of loving relationship, well, my friends, that's what small groups should be like, isn't it? Whether it's 12 or 20 or so, we gather together with an expectation we're going to hear from God for each other, to encourage each other, that we prophesy. And it's going to be in relationship, greetings, greetings, greetings. And it's going to be prophesying in terms of who they are in God and what God has for them. Blessed, blessed, blessed. When I was uh, first here, um, back in September last year, one of my first times at group, um, I don't think Fiona's here this morning actually, but she brought a word for me that was the exact scripture that convinced me to move away from crew. And in those early weeks, I felt a bit disorientated. I felt a bit, where am I? What am I doing? And it was the exact scripture that convinced me to move from where I previously was to here. Do you think that was encouraging? Just a lot. It was very encouraging. It was fantastic. And she didn't know that verse was um, one I'd been given or heard from God previously, but it spoke such encouragement into my life. Just to encourage you that God wants us to be Barnabas-like, because Barnabas was Christ-like, because of the Holy Spirit in him, and he was committed to encouraging. And a big part of how he did that was prophesying. Maybe he wasn't a prophet like Agabus, and maybe not many of us are prophets, prophets in that sense, but we can all prophesy to encourage and strengthen one another. Because no doubt that's what Jesus did. He spoke into the life of his disciples. He did that again and again. This is a wonderful portrait of a clearly fantastic church. And they were first called Christians at Antioch. Why? Because they did worship Jesus, they did proclaim his name, but because they were Christ-like individually and corporately, they reflected the life and ministry of Jesus in their heart for multitudes, seeing great numbers saved, in the fact that they were anointed by the Holy Spirit, baptized with power to live the life that God had called them to, and that they had a hunger for biblical truth. They were taught for a whole year. And that also 
They were open to the prophetic. Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. We want to uphold our leaders, whether it's the elders or those who lead any ministry, and pray for them that they are those who hear from God for the direction we should go in. And we, many of us, want to be committed to hearing from God for each other so that we can say, this is who you are in God, and this is what God has for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your excellence. We just thank you that you are revealed wonderfully in this passage because this is your church, and you are the one who builds the church. And you build the church because you are the risen, ascended, glorified King of kings and Lord of lords, and you reign supreme. And you're absolutely committed to confounding the enemy and the spirit of the age and the circumstances we find ourselves in to build your church. And you're committed to building it in such a way that it reflects your life and ministry. And Lord, may we know your presence among us. May we know your glory here in this place. Lord, week on week, may we know you speaking to us. Lord, may we be those people who have a heart and a desire to see this building filled, that we would have a good number. And Lord, beyond that, somehow, sometime, a great number. Lord, because surely this city needs such churches that multitudes might come to you. And Lord, I pray also that we would be those who have a real hunger for biblical truth. Lord, that we will stand on this wonderful truth. And as we do that, so you will open it up in our hearts and cause it to live and that we might come to you afresh. And Jesus, I also pray that we would be filled with your spirit in power to live this life. Lord, not through gritted teeth, Lord, but with this gift of grace, your spirit living in us to empower us and to give us joy, that we might know that as our strength. And Lord, we want to hear from you. Lord, we want to hear from you for the direction we go in as your people in this place. We want to hear from you for our own lives. We want to hear from you for others' lives. We want to be those people who, Lord, are open to the prophetic and, Lord, exercise this gift. Lord, for your glory we pray.